All right. Well, hey, welcome to the 2021st inaugural 2021 podcast of the Workers' Comp Workers' Compensation Watch podcast. I'm John Rehm, and with me are Todd Bennett, Todd Bennett, Todd Rehm, and Roger Moore. Um, one of those common questions we get from our clients or prospective clients is, "What's my case worth?" Well, one of the biggest parts of that is, "What's your average weekly wage?" So we're going to talk about how to determine the average weekly wage and which is the most, one of the most important things for how much is your case actually worth. So, um, Todd, you want to start us out with the basics of workers comp average weekly wage? Well, the average earnings that, that one earns over a 26 week period before they get hurt, that's going to be the basis of, of what the, the time period is we're looking at is to determine the benefits what your temporary and permanent benefits are gonna be based off of. And in those 26 weeks, some people may only work five, 10 or 13, but for the most part, 26 weeks before your accident is gonna be the focus. All right, and how do you, I mean, what's, I mean, how do you prove up what you made in the first, in that, in that, in that time period? You need to have your pay stubs if, uh, if you save them is the way a worker can keep track of that. Uh, the employers keep track of those records and we as lawyers representing injured people get to you know, get their side of it by just asking, you know, what do you say his wage was or her wage was? Yeah, and uh, have our clients look at them and you know, see if it seems like they're, they're correct. Uh, All right. They're not so, public records as such, but they're, they're pretty accessible. All right. Um, now, that's pretty simple. Um, what are some, you know, but, but I mean, you can't just take your average earnings a lot of the times and divide it by 26 over the last six months, divide it by 26 and come up with a number. I mean, there's a few exceptions to how this is, two tricks to how this is calculated. Uh, does, does overtime count in, uh, in uh, average weekly wage? Roger, yeah, Roger. yeah. Overtime does doesn't it? It counts in terms of the hours. So uh, you would average your hours earned essentially over that twenty-six week wage period, and then divide that by twenty-six weeks. And so it's and it's calculated at the hourly rate that you're paid. So there's no overtime premium that's included in that. That's why John's saying you can't simply divide the wages because of those overtime bumps or holiday uh, differential or something like that that may not be included um, in the average weekly wage determination. Um, and this may seem like kind of a boring topic, but I'll, I'll tell you that I, I just had a case a couple of weeks ago with an adjuster that had been doing this for 15 to 20 years, uh, and she miscalculated the temporary benefits that were payable to the tune of about seven or $8,000. So in the right case, it can make a big difference uh, and that's just over a you know a year and a little more than a year time frame. So that's why it's important to get the summary of not only the hours that they worked for each of those 26 weeks, uh, but also the wages and other things like pay differential for hourly rates and things like that. How did you find that out? How did you kind of suss that out, Roger? That my that the, your client had been paid on underpaid seven thousand dollars. That's per, that's interesting. Yeah, it, it was a newer case that we took on. Um, she'd had, it was a compensable shoulder injury and uh, they'd been paying the benefits and it got time to 
uh, look at her vocational rate of pay to get vocational rehabilitation started. And so we wanted to get the average, uh, the, the weekly wage information, got that from the employer and then sit down and you just do the math. Um, and uh, in her case, uh, she had been off work on uh, a leave of absence for a number of those weeks. So she was only getting paid two thirds of her normal rate of pay during that time frame. And so we said to the adjuster, those aren't uh, proper weeks to include in the calculation. Those are abnormally low that have no real relationship to what, her, what she was earning during that time frame were that not the case. And so we were able to kick out those weeks, which then drove up the average weekly wage determination. But had she not come in, I mean, I had to educate the client, not only client, but the adjuster who'd been doing this for years and years and years that didn't know that kind of basic um, frame there. All right, so, hey, I do, there's something I think we left out that our, our listeners ought to know about, that the wages that we use to calculate this average is not take-home wages, it's your gross pay. Just to, to no, and, that, and that's a good point, and that kind of goes back to what I was going to say is, it's the basis of the weeks that we're looking at are, are are the representative weeks of a normal typical business week or work week, and and that's kind of a side issue of not only what you earn, but whether those earnings reflect what a typical regular business week would would entail. So, for example, kind of like Rogers or somebody else, if somebody's sick and misses two and a half days a week, that's not gonna be a typical work week. So that week is low because those wages are not reflective of their uh, actual true earnings. And, and it's important to know why those weeks are high or low uh, so you can get a proper calculation. All right. And that number that Roger mentioned, seven or $8,000 over a year period, you know, that's, it ends up being probably $30 a week or $40 a week or something like that, depending upon how it's calculated. The, the, getting, the, getting the wages wrong hurts the worker big time if they, under, if they undercalculate them. And real quick, and this can be answered by anybody, it, it's also um, the difference between somebody working less than 40 hours, what they would get paid on a temporary basis. And then ultimately, when we're talking about permanent disability, it's based on a 40-hour work week. Um, because a lot of workers are still getting shortchanged because they don't get the benefit of the permanent benefit being paid on a 40-hour work week. So somebody who works regular maybe does 32 hours a week or 36, when they get to the end of their case and it's permanent disability, they get paid, they get a, they're guaranteed a 40-hour rate. Correct, correct. All right. And um, actually, of course, what you do is you, you kick out those when you're determining the permanent benefit rate you're kicking out any weeks that are less than 32 hours a week, uh, less than 40 hours a week, actually. The, the, the average has to be 40 hours times the hourly rate, no matter how you calculate it. So if the average of the hours works less than that, then you, you get bumped up to 40 hours because you're paying permanent benefits. So that's, that's what I was trying to do in determining the vocational rehabilitation wage rate and then came across this other issue for temporary benefits. All right. So... Uh, you also don't count with things you don't count. You don't count insurance. You don't count pensions. You don't count overtime. I mean, fringe benefits don't come in most of the time. But are there times where, where there's maybe dip types of employment where it's a little more tricky 
to calculate average weekly wage, like tipped employees? How does that work? It's, well, tipped employees are, are tricky because you, you kind of got to, you can't guess at what the tips are or what they would be or what they were. You kind of got to have a uh, set in stone, uh, either a, a verbal agreement, written agreement, or at least a written uh, log of what those tips were earned. So you can actually have actual earnings, not just speculative. Sure. Um, are there ever times that we, I mean, is it absolutely essential if, if you go to court to have everything written out or can employees testify about what their wages are in court and have a judge award benefits based on that? Yeah, Rod's kind of smirking. I mean, you can, you can always testify to what you think is important or what, what things are or aren't. But, uh, you know, I think our experience tells us that unless you've got it documented somehow, you know, if you're, if you're telling the judge, well, I actually got paid $2 an hour more than this reflects and you don't have any document to, to back it up, they're just not going to put much credibility in that. So as Todd was saying with the, with the tips, you know, it, it's a pretty common thing. I, th I think that a lot of waiters and waitresses don't report what they're actually tipped income might be well if god forbid it happened that they were actually injured on the job and that made a difference that, that's where that could come back and bite you in the end so it's right. important to, to have that documentation or if you share tips or if you, you're part of a tip pool or if you're a cook or you're back of the house keep track of that stuff yeah. right and this is also, kind of a change of topic i was going to yeah talk about but um well i guess, I guess it was tips sorry Sorry. Apologize. No, that's all right. But I mean, some people also get paid per diem. Uh, and, you know, traveling employees, people are on the road get paid expenses. How are like if 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 how are how are living expenses? When are those wages? And when are um, when are they not wages? Well, the fundamental rule says there has to be an agreement that you're getting paid for these per day per diem is daily rates uh, and, that, and, that, that, and that that is part of the contract of employment. Uh, that gets, I, I haven't, we don't run into that very often and generally speaking, uh, in my experience, uh, they get paid correctly most of the time, but I mean, you, you just have to be aware that there's supposed to be a, a contract and that most of the time in the employment context is just what people say because there aren't written, there aren't a lot of written employment contracts. And actually, uh, I've got an ongoing case that that uh, for over two years before this gentleman hired me, he was getting paid a certain legal wage of about 500 bucks a week. Well, in his wage records, he was actually getting a per diem of $150 a day, and that was solely based on attendance. So if he works six days a week, which he did, he's getting 150 extra dollars a week at six days a week. But what the employer was doing was not taking it off the gross wage, taking the taxes out, and then basically giving him credit for the per diem after the taxes, but not giving him credit in the comp case for the per diem being paid. So kind of like Roger's situation, we got about a really about a $15,000, $18,000 difference because per diem is added in that case. And kind of goes to rule number two where it's got to be a real economic gain to them. 
if it's just a reimbursement for his receipts and expenses, that's not going to be factored in. But if it's strictly based on attendance or the verbal agreement they're going to pay it per day, then it's going to be factored and considered in the average weekly wage, which is substantially increasing that average weekly wage. Yeah. Now, a lot of people get hurt when they first start a job. I mean, it's something that's one of the most dangerous when people are new and when they're they don't know what they're doing or they're younger or whatever but when they when they're when they're inexperienced employees get hurt a lot if you so if you get hurt first couple of weeks or first couple of months of your job how do you calculate wages when you don't have six months of wages to base it off of it's definitely a tougher proposition in a lot of those cases um, they end up getting uh, less than temporary benefits because of that because you may only have a week or two for temporary benefits, most employers will just look at that two-week time frame, um, average it out, and that's what they get paid. Um, you can try and introduce evidence that, um, again, those are not representative weeks, that the person maybe only worked a few days the first week, or maybe the first week was training and not really employment. Uh, those are definitely tougher arguments to make to a judge, uh, but you, in theory, could introduce uh, pay records for uh, other similarly situated employees um, to document the wage rate. And, and Iowa's better about that and allowing those types of things to come into evidence when you only have a short time frame to, right. to look at. Nebraska law really hasn't been developed very well in that regard, uh, but that's certainly something you could do. But I'll tell you for the time being, they're gonna pay you based on those two weeks until you prove otherwise. All right. Yeah, change topics a little bit, and I'm going to talk a little bit about school employees because I'm, I, I got a published case about that that to talk a little bit about that. What about people that like earn wages during a certain time of the year? Let's say like professional athletes, minor league baseball players, arena football players here in Nebraska and Iowa. Um, any 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 experience representing minor league athletes or professional athletes in regards to average weekly wage issues? where like you're only playing during baseball during a certain season and you're paid a certain amount for a three month season. Any experience with that? Anyway, well, I've never done an athlete case. I've got some school cases, but I've never done an athlete case. Have you done athlete cases? Well, the athlete cases are kind of like that. Uh, I don't even remember the team, the Blitz or the Arcade or whatever it was in Kearney. Uh, they're, they're tough situations because they try to pay them with vouchers and essentially gas cards, food cards uh, from Bosselman's, for example. Um, but then their cash tips and the, and the cash they get for signatures and autographs, that's not documented. And typically, obviously, to prove wages, it, what the actual earnings are, you got to have documents proving what you earn. So in those right. cases, they're a little bit, because it's a, at a kind of a minor level, you got to document what your gas card was, your motel card, your food allowance, the cash that you were getting, you got to you got to document that, uh, and hopefully have some proof of what that was. Well, we, there used to be a professional hockey team in Omaha, and we were one of their designated lawyers. Roger did most of those cases. Was wages ever an issue in those? Yeah, not at that level. That was that was AAA, so the wages were pretty well documented. They were paid like employees. Yeah, yeah they were they were salaried essentially. So. You know, again, they might they might get paid their salary during a three or four month time frame, but that's essentially a year salary. So they're taking that salary and dividing it by 52 to get that uh, average weekly wage 
figure. And the same was true for the, the, the storm chasers. Back, back then, I had a pitcher that was worked for, uh, played for the Omaha Royals, which is a AAA ball club here in town. Same kind of deal. He was getting about 75 grand a year. And so we, we basically divided that by 52 to come up with his weekly wage based upon that. So if it's seasonal employment of any type where most of your uh, work is performed over only a few months during the year, they're going to extrapolate that over the course of an entire year and use that lower amount. It, you can't just say, well, I got paid 75 grand for essentially four months worth of work. So we're only going to divide it by 13 or 14 weeks, not the 52. And I ran into a similar experience in a, in a, in a school case where you know the the worker was earning wages over nine months and was paid they they would dole out the salary once uh you know or they'd average it out over over a year and so yeah and the supreme court said yeah in that case they could one thing that's interesting though with school employees is you, you i i uh, you want to focus on the contract of hire and it's interesting when I had a wife when she we were on when she was on maternity leave. She actually ended up repaying her benefits the exact opposite way of how that Mueller case went. You know because the 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 school was saying, well, no, you actually for the purposes of your uh, maternity pay, you only get you know you only get paid when you work. And a lot of contracts, at least for educators, are like you're paid you know certain number of hours per day, and this is your hourly rate. And if they don't work it, they don't get paid. So um, again, I think they're kind of fact dependent situations. Uh, and it's something that I ran across in my own personal life was that. So um, again, yeah, I actually disagree with that because I think that we've had all had teachers at one time or another. And if you earn the income during the first nine months, but you choose to have it paid out over 12, yeah. no question you've already earned it. Um, and I still think that's a case that um, yeah. probably didn't, wasn't decided correctly on the facts, but. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, yeah, it's a real, it's a, it's a fact, fact dependent issue. And there's actual employees, Todd, they're seasonal, actually called seasonal employees, because school employees aren't seasonal, personal athletes mm -hmm. aren't necessarily seasonal, but there's some work that are actually seasonal employees, and you've done some seasonal employee well, cases, or tried. Yeah. We're in the middle of a seasonal employee, but uh, based on the case law, I don't think any seasonal employees actually exist because there's some bad law in the in the 80s and 90s that simply say if you can do those work functions at any time during the year, you're not a seasonal worker. But ironically, when you focus on the employer, like a Christmas tree farm, that's kind of carved out where obviously you're only going to cut a Christmas tree down during the Christmas time. But on the other hand, you have retail workers who the IRS identifies as seasonal and they're paid seasonal. And, and the difference is just like certain pumpkin farms we have that, uh, patches that people want to go to that uh, unless you're pulling the pumpkin from the vine, they don't think you're a seasonal worker. But if you even are pulling the pumpkin from the vine, you can go down to Florida, California and do that all year round. So technically, there's really no definition of what a seasonal worker is. Is a mall Santa a seasonal worker? Well, according to the IRS, they are, but not the employer. <laughs> All right. I think the big takeaway from this is wages seems like kind of a boring or simple topic, but uh, it, when, when somebody's injured, 
get more complicated than they might realize and they should probably talk to a lawyer to figure out if they're getting paid the right amount because you know 20 30 40 $50 a week adds up after a while if you're being shorted and that does happen yeah, yeah and ultimately it's going to determine what the overall value of temporary permanent and or uh, potential settlement is right yeah besides well, maybe including weeks that are too low are there other ways that employers will underpay injured workers well there is a there, there's the one week disqualification initially that they don't owe for uh, but a lot of employers or at least some of them think that you you have to amount to 40 hours of missed work before they're going to start to pay you, and that's not true uh, the way that's determined, you essentially have to miss, if you miss a portion of a day, so if you go to the doctor and you clock out, then that counts as one of the days that you have to miss. And if you've got five of those days, five times you've gone to the doctor's appointment, then you don't have to wait your waiting week to get paid your benefits if right. you take it off of work. So that's, that's one way. And then another one I, I would point out is the, the temporary partial disability benefit. If your uh, hours are reduced, um, if they say you can't work overtime, or if they um, cut your rate of pay, they owe you the difference between what you were making uh, grossing uh, and what you're making right now. And a lot of employers aren't very good about keeping track of that. So I, I know in my case, I have my clients bring in their pay stubs every week so I can figure out what their benefits are, let the adjuster know that because there just doesn't seem to be a lot of communication between the employer and the insurance company. The employee gets hurt with that. But I think you're aware that electronic payroll is widely available anymore. It seems that uh, ask them if they, if they have access to their employment, their pay, pay records on the internet, because most companies of any size have all that available to them. And that's the way I, to check. And I think there's some natural problems because sometimes the insurance company will decide I'm gonna, we're going to pay weeks Monday to Sunday. And your employer considers a week Monday to you know Wednesday to Tuesday, and then some people are biweekly. And workers comp workers comp benefits tend to get paid once a month, and they don't always coordinate too. Um, so one thing I see sometimes is underpayment is shift differential. Sometimes people that'll work a morning shift will get paid their straight wage, and then if they work night shifts, they'll get you know they'll be paid a little shift differential. And then when the disability benefits are calculated, they're bitten paid on their straight wage. So I've seen that happen quite a bit too with people whose whose shifts change from day shifts to night shifts. So and that and that's a good point you brought up because typically some will work uh, a regular shift differential during the day, get another night differential, and then work the weekend and get us another shift differential increase. And and they don't always keep track of that, especially. Uh, for a comp adjuster to, to calculate those numbers in. Yeah, and that can add up to a couple hundred dollars. That can add up in a couple hundred dollars here and there. And again, but that's real money. You got people that you can't handle 80%, something like 80% of people can't handle a $400 emergency. And you know, $400 can be the underpayment e even for shift differential over, over, over a period of disability. So, right. um, so besides going to court, are there any other remedies for underpayment of workers' compensation benefits? Maybe it's a poor question. 
I know in wage and hour law, you can get attorney's fees if you show that wages are underpaid. Can you sometimes get attorney's fees and penalties if you show workers' comp benefits were underpaid? And I think the easy question is absolutely. If they calculated it wrong and they had notice or at least the proper figures uh, and wage records to determine it correctly, I don't think there's any question you could get penalties uh, and attorney's fees for an improper calculation. Yeah, I've, I've taken the approach of trying to take a hard line approach that the employer knew the wages, the insurance company had access to the wages. If they screwed up the calculation, that's on them. My client shouldn't be punished because you didn't do the, your job properly. Just like we're charged with knowing the law um, for our clients, they need to know the law and know what the rules are about paying injured employees. And if they don't, then I'm more than happy to ask for a waiting time penalty because there's no excuse for them not doing those calculations. Um, one other thing I wanted to kind of jump in here with is, is we didn't talk about uh, with the temporary benefits that there, there is a max rate. So in Nebraska, oh, yeah, yeah. if you earn more than, um, you know, it's 882, I think it is currently or something close to that. So if, if two thirds of your average weekly wage is more than 882, you only get 882. So if you're making $2,000 a month, two thirds of that should be 1666, but in Nebraska law, they're only required to pay you that 882 of benefits. So this is a big problem for high wage earners, uh, truckers and executives and things like that. People that are paid very well, that they just get screwed at that money because the legislature decided that was the maximum yeah. amount that the employer had to pay. Um, so, and that's hard to explain because there's, there's no rationale for that number as opposed to a number 50 or $100 higher other than we're just trying to save the insurance company money. Yeah, I think the rule comes from what the state average weekly wage is. Um, that's where I think that's where that's where that's where it comes from. And uh, trying to find the number for this year, I think like your salary, if you work a straight time salary, it's like seventy one thousand dollars a year is what it boils down to. So and yeah, and again, people who maybe exceed that, that, that amount, $71,000 through overtime, they, again, they don't get paid for that. So yeah, uh, it is, um, it is a penalty to people who are higher wage people, but again, people who are lower wage workers who rely on overtime, a lot of overtime to make money also get underpaid as well. Right. So, all right. Anything else we want to talk about with wages? Well, I think one important thing we kind of skipped over a little bit was the change in job duties oh, how yeah. it affects your wages because um, if it's pretty much just a, an increase it's going to get factored in together but if you change your job duties that are materially different then you're only looking at the the higher wage at that materially different job that you're performing at the time of your accident so for example somebody who's an entry-level worker per say getting 10 bucks an hour but after three or four months, they get a promotion and then they're getting $15 an hour and then they work for three or four months doing a different job and then they get hurt. What an employer will like to do is commingle them all so it's a lesser average weekly wage. Whereas when it's, you get the benefit of doing a different job at higher rate and then that ultimately obviously increases what you're entitled to. That's real common in truck driving where they where you get driver trainees and I think Werner's paying driver trainees $11 an hour now it's gone up from nine since when I started uh, but they do 11 and then you know then the person gets to be a rate you know after about three months or so they become a regular driver and then they try to 
compress the trainee pay and the regular driver pay. So right. does it happen in any other industries besides trucking on a common basis? I can't really think of any besides trucking where that's common. Well, there's manufacturing where you go from, like I said, an entry level to being no. promoted on a particular assembly uh, machine uh, because it's a materially different job and they get a bump almost half of what they were making before. Those are two different things where you get a promotion from a lead worker to actually being a manager. Uh, those are two different jobs, even though it's the same employer. What if you go temp to permanent, like, you know, like let's say you go from uh, advanced services, let's say you're working at advanced services and you become a Kawasaki full-timer in the next uh, six months, would you count the ASI wages? Well, it kind of depends on what the job they're being promoted to then. If it's the same job, not, no. But if they get promoted to a higher job and a higher wage, which is different than what they did before, uh, more common you see it where they're promoted to a lead worker or a supervisor or a manager, because uh, that's a different job at a, at a higher pay scale. So you're just gonna focus on those wages. But again, the insurance company just wants to commingle them all so yeah. they pay less. So by the way, the maximum is a different pay grade maybe. Right. All right. By the way, the maximum pay rate starting January 1, 2021, or the Nebraska Workers Comp maximum pay is 9.14 a week. Oh, sorry that. So, another question I get a lot is, well, you know, I've missed out on several raises since I got hurt. I get they got a bump an hour as a result of this after my injury occurred. Unfortunately, the, the wage they're looking at is determined at the date of the injury. So any increase in wages that occurred after that, or really decrease for that matter, doesn't get factored into the compensation rate while you're off work. You and essentially lose the benefit of that. And there's no cost of living increases if you're on benefits for years and years. I've, yeah. Uh, if you have a lifetime award, you're going to get paid for 50 years. Your pay rate's going to be stuck at what it was at the first year. Mm -hmm. And we different groups, including lawyers groups that we all belong in, try to change that every few years and never seem to have any luck with the legislature. Oh, but of course, if you know, you get a cost of living, you maybe you do get a cost of living increase, you're doing the same job. The employer will always argue that you're making more money now than you were at the time of the injury as well. That is something else to keep in mind. Right. So, right. Anything else anybody wants to talk about, about weight, about average weekly wage? I think one thing that we, got, that we all assume, because we deal with it all the time, is the average weekly wage is, is important in calculating the benefits. The real average payment that you get from workers' comp is two-thirds of the average weekly wage. So for a person to get $900 in salary, they're, they're, they're going to have to be making, what, thirteen or 1400 to get, no, no, not that much, but... Yeah, around $1,300 a week gross. So, right. And it's tax-free, too. Workers' so, comp is tax-free, correct. Yeah, the, the, so the tax-free, two-thirds of your gross tax-free is like maybe 85 90% of your actual take-home, which a lot of times insurance companies or employers will say, well, you're only getting two-thirds of your pay. You know, but that's not exactly true. That's it's more like 85 90% of your pay. Right. 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 Yeah, some clients too, because they worked a lot of overtime, will will think that they're being underpaid uh, by the workers' compensation, and that gets back to like we talked about. You don't get the 
time and a half bump for work comp, it's only at straight pay. So, and if you had a lot of overtime, then two thirds of your wage is probably going to be less than two thirds of what your gross pay is. Right. Because you don't get that benefit. Exactly. Sure. This wage issue is kind of, there's this old saying, the devil's in the details. And there really is a lot of details that go along with making sure you're getting paid correctly. All right. Well, hearing no other comments, let's just get it wrapped up for this month. Thanks to everybody for taking time out of their day. Thanks for Haley for putting everything together and uh, getting everything put up so everybody can see it. And we'll talk to you again next month. I've got one more bad dad joke to, to end the video with. All right, let's hear it. Uh, my son came in the other day and he said, Dad, I'm cold. Uh, and I said, uh, go stand in the corner where it's 90 degrees. <laughs> Not funny. Funny. I think All it's right. a little funny. It's That's, a dad joke. That's supposed to be funny. You just put it for bad joke. <laughs> I'm <laughs> out. Makes you think a little bit. Yeah. yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks.